Welcome back to another edition of Kind of Christian. Now, we've all heard the phrase, the power of prayer and God heals. And frankly, sometimes it's hard to believe because let's be honest, we all know people have probably prayed for something, maybe a healing, and it didn't come true. That's why I really enjoyed this interview with Pastor Obed Martinez. Now, he's the lead pastor of Destiny Church out in Palm Springs, and he opens up and gets pretty vulnerable about some times when he saw God do some crazy things and sometimes when it didn't pan out. And I think it's a really healthy discussion. Pastor Obed shares his wisdom for how he found God and even shares his own radical encounter with God, which forever changed his life. So regardless of where you arrive at some of these things, I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. So welcome, Pastor Obed Martinez. Pastor, thanks for being here, man. Absolutely. It's such an honor to be with you today. Oh, an honor. All right. It's an upgrade. No one yes. said it's an honor yet. So Absolutely. I know it is 111 degrees outside. And uh, spirits are high, and so is the temperature. So I am <laughs> thankful to be inside here yeah. talking with you. I want to start off, how long have you been a Christian? Uh, well, you know, living for Christ, uh, I got saved when I was 16. I'm 46. Uh, I was born and raised in a Christian home. Uh, that doesn't uh, mean a lot, yeah. but at the end of the day, um, now I was able to see two parents that really lived their faith out. Um, and I think at the end of the day, uh, there came a time when I was challenged and failed and uh, failed miserably and um, really chose a different path for my life that kind of ended um, with me uh, being incarcerated and, uh, and then obviously um, having a lot of time to really think about the choices. Um, and, you know, it made me realize that you know, God doesn't make bad people. It's that uh, bad people are just a result of bad choices. And uh, that's what happened to my life. All right. So you were, I did not know this, you were incarcerated. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I, we do want to hear that story. Yeah. I, I do. Before we get into that, I was, what does it mean? So when you say you're a Christian and have been a Christian, what does that actually mean to you? You know, I think at the end of the day, you know, growing up in church, living, you know, pretty much on my mom and dad's faith and, you know, um, uh, leaning on them instead of leaning on Christ. And that's what a young child does. Um, you know, there comes a time when, you know, your faith has to become, you know, re real to you. you. You can't have just a knowledge of it, but you need an experience from it. And, um, and I think... Um, I went through a time in my life um, where I, I, the knowledge wasn't good enough and it didn't solve all my answers that I had. Um, so I drifted and went looking and went on a search. And I think that's what we all do sometimes that leads us into paths um, that we thought we would never, we would never go. And, um, and it was at 16 years old. Uh, five days, four days, excuse me, after I got out of prison on a Monday, it was a Friday that I went to camp. Um, and I went just really to please my mom. And I had an experience with God. And that, that was when my faith became real to me. Um, I wouldn't say it was never real. I just, it became real to me. Now, has anyone optioned the story or can we hear about this experience? Yeah, you know, um, my my mother uh, would visit me every weekend. Um, she never drove the interstates or the freeway, we call them in California. Um, and so she would take the bus to come visit me in, in jail and um, every weekend she was faithful to it. Um, and when I got out, she asked me and, and could I do her one favor? And that was to go to camp. 
And uh, not knowing that my mom paid her last $60 because my dad was on strike. My dad was in the LA Fire Department, uh, firefighter, and they were on strike at that time. And she used the last $60 that she got to clean the house to send me to camp. And, um, and that night I was there and, um, you know, the youth pastor, um, I was sitting in the back and he says, you know, there's, there's a, a seat in the front row. We'd love for you to be there. And I guess he was just trying to make me comfortable. And I went and, um, you know, again, that intimidation um, rose up. You know, I saw some young people in the front row really, you know, um, expressing their faith in worship by lifting hands or singing with such great passion. Um, and that wasn't, that wasn't me. And I convinced myself at that moment that wasn't me. Um, and the truth was, was that I was intimidated by something I know that was really authentic that I had not yet experienced. And um, our youth pastor went up there and said, you know, if you love Jesus, just lift your hands. And, and the rest was history. So you just, when you say an experience with God, did it just, did God meet you there? Did you feel something? Yeah. You know, um, I lifted my, my left arm up and, um, and it's, it was an unusual experience. Um, I never had felt nothing like that in my life. I've, I've heard people say, I, I feel the Holy spirit or I feel Jesus. And, Honestly, I used to probably be the biggest mimic. You know, we used to come home and play church, you know, mm. because that's all we were able to do in some sense. And and we would mimic those things um, and joke around about them. And um, and and I I believe God knew what He had to do with me. I, I believe He had to have. He knew He had to have an experience with me where I would feel Him, where my life in some sense would 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 be transformed by no one's preaching or no one's touch. And, you know, the, the preaching hadn't taken place yet. It just, worship just ended. Um, no one had laid hands on me. And it was just one of those real experiences that, again, it doesn't happen to everybody. Um, and, and that's what I always like people to know. But I really believe God gives you an experience and it becomes your experience. And my experience may not be your experience. So you just, it was, it was this feeling then, if you were to boil it down, it was a, it was a feeling that something came over you that was different. Yeah, than... all I can do, all I, and I remember explaining this to my mom, I, I lifted my hands and, and I felt like a dam break inside of me. And I, I could not stop crying uncontrollably. I mm. was sobbing for two hours. And how I knew it was two hours, because when I looked up, the rest of the group was on their knees crying and people were seeking God. And, um, and I remember looking at my watch and it had been two hours and it was like, as if I got lost somewhere. And you're not the guy, I mean, you just gotten out of jail, right? So you're not yeah. the guy who's going to be crying for two hours in front of people. No. And, and, and again, um, uh, cynical, uh, in, in some degrees, sarcastic in some, um, and, and, and again, going back to what I had said, I believe that God knew I needed an encounter with him, um, for that faith to become more real to my life than just the faith I was living by with my parents. So when people hear these stories, on one hand, this experience was so powerful that it, you still talk about it today, 30 years later, yeah. you're still transformed by this experience. Yeah. To a skeptic who might say, well, you were overrun with emotion. You yeah. had just had a traumatic point in life. You had just gotten out of jail. What do you say when people doubt experiences like that? You know, I, 
I, one of the things that I always tell people um, is um, we can argue the Bible all day, but we can't argue an experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to argue someone's experience that they may have, whether it was death or, or whether it was a loss of a friend or a loss mm-hmm. of a relationship. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he validates people's feelings. He may not validate their actions, but he validates their feelings. And you know, that's found in the story of Mary and Martha when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus. He validates both of their feelings, but he doesn't validate their thought or their um, opinion of what and why he showed up four days late. Um, And at the end of the day, if my experience to a skeptic um, in some degree can be argued, then that's something they're gonna have to deal with. My experience is my experience. And that's why I'm saying the thing that I love about Paul the apostle was that he never went around saying, hey, in order to be saved and to come to the knowledge of Christ, you have to ride on a donkey and be knocked off of it and then three days be blind. And I think some of the danger out there when it comes to faith is often we turn experiences into doctrine. Mm -hmm. Um, And the truth is, is that I just believe everybody has their own experiences. It's why it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So would you say if you were to look back and you're right, you can't, no one's going to convince someone that what they experienced or did not experience, it may not even matter, right? But Mm -hmm. would you argue then that, hey, let's just, let's look at the result down the line. Mm -hmm. And if an experience is followed by a significant transformation, then it almost doesn't matter how real it was, right? Because it led to a real transformation, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, sometimes it's hard for me. We have Celebrate Recovery here at the church, and sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my head around somebody who's committed to a 12-step program um, and and at the end of the day, um, do it day after day, week after week. Um, but you, you're convinced of their discipline and their transformation when you see that new person, mm-hmm. you know, 12 months later, 24 months later, you know, 10 years later. It's very difficult to doubt the experience when you see the fruits right in front of you. Um, And I think at the end of the day, um, be a skeptic as long as you can um, until those fruits become a reality in your life. Yeah. So since we're talking about experience here, and I know a lot of detractors from Christianity would say, well, there's if they walked into, I guess a good example would be like the Azusa Street Revival, which took place, you know, it was almost 100 years ago. Or, mm-hmm. And the newspapers are reporting that people are dancing and talking in strange tongues and they're laying all over the ground. And people think this is just crazy, mm-hmm. right? So, but as a pastor and someone who's been a Christian for this long, have you, have you, would you say that these experiences are, I mean, these, there's a real things that happen in Christianity. Like there's, there's just things we can't explain that go yeah. on. Yeah. And, 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 and Ryan, I was one of them, you know, uh, I'll never forget sitting in our church at, as a young boy, uh, our Sunday school teacher was, was absent that Sunday and we had to sit with mom and dad in church and um, these people start giving these words out. Um, and so they were so spot on. What do you mean? When you say giving words that you're like sitting they there? were saying like, you know, worship had ended and they were saying, you know, kind of these words of exhortation. And it was like three or four in the congregation. And there's a thousand people in this auditorium. So I lean over to my mom and I tell her, wow, did the pastor give them all scripts? Because they're all saying the same thing, mom. And she's like, oh, no, no, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, 
wow, you know? And so I understand from an outside perspective where somebody can be skeptic and somebody can look at that and go, man, that just logically doesn't make sense. And I think, you know, the writer of Hebrew says in chapter 11, verse three, he says, by faith, Enoch understood. And I think it's really hard to understand the things of faith if you're not in faith. Um, but from an outside perspective, yeah, I mean, and I would encourage that skeptic to chase after it as you would chase after anything that you were skeptical of that you knew in some sense there may be some truth in this. I mean, that's why I love you know, the way church is today, I love our church because at the end of the day, we always say that, you know, man, all we're asking you each week is just take another step. We're not asking you to transform because that's not our job, but our job really is just take another step. And we're all in different steps when it comes to faith and in life. And what I may call someone's bluff on and being skeptic uh, of, of, of their change in their life today might radically change for me two years from now um, because I had an experience that brought about that change that at one time I was skeptical about. Oh, man. So you mentioned words of exhortation. So in the in the Christian church, there are mentions of miracles, miraculous answers to prayer, healings, people knowing things about people they couldn't have known, uh, prophecy, the idea of you know knowing things about potentially about the future via the Holy Spirit. Is that stuff in your experience, real? And is that something that you have interacted with or know people who've interacted with? Yeah. Um, I know it's a, it's a big point of division in a lot of churches yeah. about whether or not that stuff kind of happens today. You know, and again, I, you know, I go back to your own experiences and, and again, I would never, you know, put that on somebody. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I drive down highway 111 here in the desert and I pass by a lot of, card reading stores. Um, People are walking in there because they understand there is another world. Mm -hmm. There's a supernatural world out there. Um, And they go and look for it. And because they wanna be told, they want some assurance of what their future can look like. And, and, And so I don't hold prophecy only within the realm of the church. You know, people are searching for it every day. That's why these tarot stores are still in business today. You know, they're having to pay their rent. You know, if not, then, uh, you know, uh, it would be a sign that nobody was looking for something like that. So, yeah. so I, I think it, I, I think when it comes to miracles and it comes to prophecy, um, it goes back to that place and those people. Um, you know, I remember when my sister, um, got um got healed of lupus and the doctors my sister was on dialysis three times a week wow um and god absolutely healed her we got the documentation from the doctor everything it was a real genuine like you, miracle so you 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 prayed for her and there was like no not medicine it was just she was being treated no not a good prognosis and then you prayed for her and she was healed. Yes, and she she got prayed for. I didn't pray for her, but she got prayed over and God miraculously touched her. Wow. Um, my sister goes a few years without um, treatments and her liver is great, her pancreas is great, her organs are, vi- are, are great. And I'm driving home one night and uh, from the movies with 
at that time, my girlfriend, who was who's now my wife, and we get a call and says, Debbie's been rushed to the hospital. She has a brain aneurysm. And so we go to the hospital and we're like, hey, God, if you healed her three years ago, yeah. you can heal her now. And uh, we prayed for her and, and, and she was on a ventilator and the doctor says, if there's no change and no brain activity, then you guys are gonna have to make the toughest decision. And I remember the next day going to the church because my offices were there and there was the knock on the door and I was the only one there and a lady comes and she has a bandana wrapped around her head. And she goes, I'm looking for a pastor to pray for because I have surgery tomorrow. They're gonna get a, a tumor out of my brain. And Ryan, I, everything inside of me wanted to laugh because I'm like, God, you're humorous. You know, you know what I'm looking for right now. <laughs> like today, really? And, and always in my life of being transparent and authentic that I truly love to live by, I, I looked at her and I said, I, I can't help you. Um, because my sister right now is on a ventilator and we're gonna have to probably make the most toughest decision. And I don't have the faith to pray for you. And she looked at me and, and she says, well, will you just agree with me? The Bible says if two or three agree. And I said, I, I can do that. And mm -hmm. she prayed. Um, the next day, that morning, uh, we make the biggest decision and my sister goes home to be with the Lord. And that afternoon while we're at my house, I get the phone call from the church secretary that said, were you the person that prayed for this woman yesterday? And I said, well, I didn't pray for her. Um, and I told her the story. She goes, well, she went to the doctors and the tumor's gone. They flew her in a helicopter to another place and got a second opinion and the tumor's gone. And I can tell you that um, it led me down a spiral of confusion. Yeah. Of God, how come you healed her and not my sister? Um, my brother, who um, was uh, diagnosed at seven years old with cystic fibrosis, the doctors told um, our family he wouldn't live past 11. And my mother, I'll never forget coming home and she had the test results and she brought us all in the living room and she said, whose report are we gonna believe? We're gonna believe the report of the Lord. And my mother was a great woman of faith. Um, and my brother lived till he was 25, graduated with two master's degrees from UCLA and fulfilled every dream, okay? But he was one hour away from a lung transplant. I'm at USC Medical Center with my brother, I mean with my cousin and my uncle who's gonna each give up a lobe of their lung to my brother. My brother's at Long Beach Memorial um, and I get the phone call that your brother's organs are failing. Um, my brother, we said goodbye to my brother knowing that the next time he wakes up, he's gonna breathe just like us. And next thing you know, my brother goes into cardiac arrest and dies. Um, and again, it left me down a spiral of confusion until a year later, I'm golfing at the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation with USC Medical Center and I'm with his case manager. And we're at a hole and he tells me, he says, Obed, you know, in my final interview with, my, with your brother, I don't know if he ever shared this story with you. You know, your brother never wanted to know the day he would die. It was his biggest fear. And a lung transplant is the only open air transplant in your body. And so the longevity isn't that long, it's two to 10 years. And as much as I think your brother wanted new lungs, 
I think God really answered his prayer by taking him home because at the end of the day, he would have known the day he would die. And so these experiences that I had that questioned God, questioned who and how and how, and and what uh, when it comes to miracles, um, I've been down that path. But at the end of the day, I still wake up and the sun is in its place. The birds are still chirping. I got oxygen in my body. I got breath in my lungs. And I cannot deny the fact that God is still God. And even though it may not have been what I wanted or maybe what I wanted to experience or what I believed for, by no means do I feel like God's failed me more than I believe that God strengthened me for somebody that's even listening right now. Wow. Man, how do you even begin to unpack that? Like it, prayer is such a huge part of a, a Christian's life. How do you approach that when you've seen a miraculous healing with your sister only to have it fail in a sense a couple years later or change, right? And then have a woman, a complete stranger. I mean, God, that sounds like a really weird sense of humor for God to send <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, right. And she gets miraculously healed. How do you wrestle it? God, you you healed this woman, but you took my sister and my brother away. How does how does a pastor and work that out? You know, Ryan, I I I wasn't a pastor at that time. I was a I was an evangelist. I had a consulting company. Um and if I would have told you at that time that one day I would be a pastor, I would tell you there's no way that I would ever do that because mm-hmm. sitting down with pastors and having a consulting company, I was usually brought in because of their the problems that would happen. But looking back now, it strengthens my faith because God was preparing me for what he had prepared for me. I didn't know that. I didn't know I'd end up in the desert, pastoring a church, starting a church. Um, but that was part of my preparation and walking with families that have gone through disappointments and have gone through setbacks and have gone through where their hopes were so high that God can intervene and yet never did. Um, there's that humanity side that I can give them um, as well as the faith side. And and I tell people all the time when they lose a loved one, I lost my mom, my brother, and my sister, all in a matter of four years. And I said, it's not that, I mean, it, it, it never gets easy. It's just that every year we get stronger. And that resonates with people. Um, and at the end of the day, I don't think people are often looking for the logical answer. I think they're just looking for a pathway to heal um, because they know they're never going to get that person back. Mm-hmm. So God is all good, right? Mm-hmm. God, so God is good. So you said, you know, sunshine and birds chirping, no matter what happened, God is still God. So, and that means he's good. He's in charge. How do, how does one work out then what we see? I mean, so many tragic things happen and I know the philosophical argument, you can't call something bad if there isn't a good to compare it to, but how do you work out the fact that God just is in charge of all this, but just allows it and he he seems to pick, you know, who and when he's going to heal. And it seems to be without any real consistency. It seems, is it just, he's got, he must have a reason. Are we supposed to lean on that? 
Well, at the end of the day, this is what makes us humans and the, and the fact that we are still in need of, of a God who is always in control. You know, I go back to really the beginning, um, that one of the greatest things that God ever gave man until this day still gives man is choice. Mm-hmm. And when God created man, he just didn't say it was good. He said it was very good. This is a very good creation I created, man. This man is born in the image of me and carries my likeness and gave us that choice. Um, and the one thing that I always tell our congregation is that God didn't create bad people. It's that bad choices is what takes a good person to a bad person. Mm. And still, that one good choice that they can make by turning their lives over to Christ can turn that bad person back to a good person. Um, God doesn't lose control. He allows things to happen. Um, And again, those are the choices of people. And yet at the end of the day, when we look at the scriptures and we study them, we realize that miracles were really for the unbelievers. It was really for the person that didn't believe, that needed this type of um, moment where they would realize he is God. And I think sometimes as Christians, we think we need a miracle when in all reality, we should have faith and knowing that now that let's say I was sick in my body. Yeah. I think we should call on the elders of the church, anoint him with oil and lay hands on the sick. Absolutely. But ultimately it's going to be God who's going to make the decision. And it's a win for both. At the end of the day, my brother didn't get new lungs on earth, but he got new lungs in heaven, you Mm -hmm. know? So, we were the ones left at loss, but my, for, but for my brother, it was a win for my sister. We were left at loss, but still my sister went where she desired to be ultimately. And she just beat us there. Now, was that accidental? Was it providential? I don't know. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I just know that God is still in control and it's all I can trust. So how do you work that out as far as how much God is in control of our lives? Choice is really important. I guess I'm asking, how do you decide what to sort of inquire or you know pray about and what is God, how involved is God in your life? You, know, you might say, oh, well, picking a person to marry that seems like something that would be very high on his priority list, you know, family decisions, where to go to school, all the way down to, you know, what do I have for breakfast? Yeah, uh, right. So what is, if we have choice, where, I, where does choice and God's intervention collide? Yeah, and, and, and I think where it really collides is your soul. Um, it, it, is, it, it, is, it is the connector to your body and your mind. And, and when I look at, you know, when God said, to man, or when God said, you know, I will create a woman um, to be the helpmate for the man, he really didn't give no description, you know. Uh, Again, that's choice. You know, do you like brown hair? Do you like blonde hair? Do you like blue eyes? Do you like brown eyes? I don't think God is into those details. I think he is looking at that person as he does all of us. God created us equally. 
but he designed us distinctively. Mm. And at the end of the day, sometimes we get that confused that, you know, when I was a singles pastor, you know, there's a title, uh, there's a singles pastor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and trust me, I was successful because I had about 25 and I ended with two, you know what I mean? Um, so singles so, pastor, your metric of success is a diminishing congregation. Yeah, absolutely. Got that's it. the only, smaller that's the, flock, that's right? the only congregation that should be part of the congregation. That is that, that should be going the opposite direction. Singles. Pastor, but, um, okay. <laughs> but you know, we, we, we would get into these, these, these talks and, 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 you know, it got to a point where it was like, listen, if you can't get past my eyes, you're not going to get to my heart. Mm. And, and I think Christians, sometimes over spiritualize things like, man, I just love the way they worship and that's what I'm attracted to. Well, that's not going to arouse you. Okay. <laughs> so at the end of the day, God created for man to procre to recreate and, and, and you have to be attractive to them. And you know, they, you know, you want to take care of yourself. You want her to take care of herself. Um, and we, we, we muddy the waters and, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I always tell young people, that are looking for a mate. I said, look it, if they fit your future, you gotta make that choice. And um, it's what I did with my wife. You know, my wife, we, she loved the Lord, I love the Lord. Okay, well, that's a good start. You know, um, she was attractive, I'm attractive to her, that's a good start. But what ultimately led to the decision to say, we're in this, and we dated for nine years. Um, we you dated for nine years before you got married? Yeah. Whoa. We were high school sweethearts, college sweethearts, and got married. Why, so why did you put that off? So great, 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 uh, great question. Um, we, um, I was 18. She was 16. I went off to college. Mm -hmm. She then graduated, went to college. And because we knew we were going to marry each other, there was two, three weeks we didn't talk to each other because we were in final exams or we were in study groups. But there was this... We knew we were meant to be with each other. Not that we had this epiphany moment, but because we decided that our fit, our futures fit, and um, and and we're attracted to each other, and we really believe that God, you know, brought us together in some sense. And so, um, we never had to worry about relationships. Uh, what other relationships went through because we have already decided that. So it was interesting. Relationships start off by where they're at and they're working their way towards the future. We started kind of at the future and made our way back mm -hmm. to the present. Um, and, you know, 18 years of marriage, now what, 27 years being together. Um, it's been the joy of my life. Well, since we're on the subject of marriage, we usually don't cover this till the end, but as a pastor, former singles pastor, yeah, what is the number one thing, or I should say number one uh, thing you need to have for success, for, so for a successful marriage? What is like the most important thing for a successful marriage? I think the first thing that you have to have to have a successful relationship that will lead to a marriage is a whole heart. Um, love never comes in pieces. And I think what sabotages what could have been a tremendous relationship was that still there was some broken pieces in the soul of that person. Mm. And you will bring in those pieces 
into a relationship that started whole. And you will find yourself repeating what just took place in your last relationship. And so I say, get healed before you get into a relationship because you're only going to sabotage you and yourself and, and this person um, by just offering pieces. That, mm. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing I would, I would tell them is, are you attracted to one another physically? Because that's important. Um, a lot of Christians don't like to talk about that. They're like, well, I fell in love with their heart. Well, good. Awesome. You know, I fell in love with their. I feel like that wouldn't go over well. Like if you were to say, I'm like, what do you love about me? It's like, do I look nice? So your heart is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost like, well, you can, you know, yeah. And at the end of the day, you need to be attractive to them um, because your eyes will wander. Um, and, 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 and if you remain, if you want to remain faithful to your spouse, she has, or he or she has to be the most attractive thing to you. Um, Mike Tyson said it the best. He says, there's someone always better than you that's out there. There's always going to be somebody more attractive out there. But as long as you still have that attraction for that person that started off when you were dating and still continues as you're journeying, um, that person becomes the most beautiful person in your life. And so I think having a whole heart, you know, a healed soul, uh, attraction, and I think it, the, probably one of the most important thing is that do your destinations match? Are you guys going in the same direction? Um, do you see a fit for the future? Um, again, going 10, 15 years into marriage, a lot of times people never discuss that. She had a career, he had a career. We're both going on separate, separate paths, but we never talked about how those paths can lead mm -hmm. in the same direction. And I would always say, you have to think futuristic. You have to take Jeremiah 29, 11, that God has a future and it's filled with hope. Ask God, what does that future look like? And how, in some sense, can our futures fit together? All right, so Jeremiah 29, 11, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's the ultimate coffee mug verse. Yeah. Right? Also, I'm told it's widely misunderstood. That, yeah. that verse is delivered while the Israelites are in, in wandering in the wilderness, mm -hmm. right? So not... Not a great season for them. Mm -hmm. So when people say that God has a plan for your life, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Well, I it, to put it in a practical sense, um, you know, when a new car comes out, we see the visible sign of what was a plan five years ago, 10 years ago. We see the manifestation of it. But if we looked deeper into it and traced it back to its origin, it started with a plan. Um, when I look at, when, I, when, when people sit there and say, God has a plan for your life, um, it is God, going back to my experience, saying, Obed, this is what I know you will encounter in the future. And this plan that I'm unfolding for your life right now that you're trusting me with, you may not understand it right now, but if you continue to go, it's going to make sense as you go. And, and I feel like oftentimes when we sit there as pastors say, God has a plan for your life. There's many people in our congregation saying, well, how is that for me? What, what is the plan for my life? And I really believe that comes back to going to your creator, going to the person you have a relationship with him and asking him, it's going to his word. And what does his word say about 
the plan that he has for my life, plans to prosper, plans to grow, plans to love, plans to serve. There's all these different plans that God has for his people. Um, But again, a lot of times we're looking for that um, tailor-made plan just for me. And if I can't find it, then it doesn't exist. And therefore, I'm disappointed at God because I don't believe he has a plan for my life. God does have a plan for your life. So when things go wrong and we see, you know, premature death, we see massive career failure, failures, bad decisions. Is that the plan gone wrong? Was that part of the plan? When it goes back to the plans, um, I can only go back to my own experiences. And um, at that moment, when each one of them died, um, I had no idea um, the plan. I was confused, Ryan, because I had a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, my plan was my brother was going to get new lungs. I had a plan that you know my sister would would overcome this brain hemorrhage because she was healed of lupus, um, and I quickly understood that my plan was not his plan. Um, and um, and then finding out a year later through my brother's caseworker, God's plan then made a lot more sense than my plan a year prior to that. Um, and I would just encourage people to continue, even if there's tragedy, or continue even though there's a setback, because that plan may have just been yours. And you'd realize if you stay in faith and you continue to trust, then ultimately you're going to see a plan in a different perspective and a different light. And I like to say it like this, God always has a different view of our life than we do. You know, I'm driving up to Big Bear and I stop at CVS right before you start the windy turn going up thousands upon thousands of altitude. And we walk in there, we pick up a bag, we picked up a bag of chips, some drinks, and we picked up some stuff for the cabin. And the next, you know, we're 3000 feet in our altitude. We stop, we take pictures. I look down and I see the CVS that just 15 minutes ago, I was in that store. Well, when I walked into that store, that store was bigger than me. Mm-hmm. But when I was at a different altitude, I was bigger or my, the sight was that that store really isn't that big. And I kind of look at it like, the way God looks at us, he's seeing it from a different view Mm -hmm. and he sees a lot further than what we do. And, um, and I've learned and I'm continuing to learn to trust him, um, and know that he has the best plan for my life. You mentioned a, people are looking for a custom tailored plan for their life. Do you think that God does call people to do specific jobs, roles, you know, activities. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I mean, that's, that's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I was mentioning to you before we started this podcast, I'm in a, I was in a study in the book of Nehemiah and he was a cupbearer. I mean, he, he was living in the royalty of a King, you know, he had every meal. He, he lived in the best place and God causes an interruption from his family that saw his city get torn down and all these different things. And he gets burdensome to go build something he was never qualified to do. There's nowhere in the book of Nehemiah that mentions that he was a masonry worker. 
that at one time he was a construction worker, mm. that he was at one time a builder of gates. Yet God gave him an assignment to rebuild a city, which would have taken, which would, which would take the fact that he'd have to rally people to build walls and repair gates. The crazy thing about it was that it was done in a, in a historical time of 52 days. If you looked at the qualifications of Nehemiah, Nehemiah wasn't qualified because he didn't have that resume, which reminds us all the time that when we look at what's ahead of us and we measure it against the qualifications of what we think we have and God calls us to something different, we talk ourselves out of it. Um, Because at the end of the day, we're looking at it through our qualifications when in some sense, God's looking at it through his plan. And, um, And Nehemiah was never a construction worker, but to be the cupbearer, he had to be a wise discerner and a builder of people. And so he built the people before they built the walls. And so at the end of the day, again, going back to, does God have specific plans for our life? Absolutely, but never look at them through your own qualifications. I mean, think of the disciples, you know, in Matthew chapter four or prior to these fishermen, hey guys, I'm going to call you to fish for men. And they're like, what did you, did you add a vow to it or something like that? No, no, I'm going to cause you to fish for men. They were never in the fishing for men business. They were fishermen, but never in the fishing for men business. They didn't have the resume. You know, Matthew was a tax collector. Luke was a physician. You want me to what? Spread your gospel. Mm. I'm a tax collector. I'm a money person. I'm a doctor. I'm a physician. I am not a preacher yet they were called to a specific assignment. And I really believe that where we get lost in the translation is that we're always looking at it through the lens of our own qualifications. When we have to be reminded that God came and sent his son Jesus to requalify the disqualified. Sin disqualified us. Jesus came, died for us, requalified us, and yet calls us to a work um, that he has planned for our lives. So there's precedent, it seems, biblically for God utilizing people who have no business doing what they're doing. Yeah, if you want to put it that way, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, no, a lot of. So if you if you feel underqualified, overwhelmed when you're attacking a certain problem, you may be in good company. Yeah, and and, and, and again, I, I think we, we, um, we marginalize our own selves. We talk ourselves out of things I really believe God's talking us into. And again, we're looking at it through a different lens than he is. So I want to get to the Bible a little bit. How do you know the Bible is in effect true? Well, going back to me being young and being the cynical person I was, the sarcastic person that I was, the Bible was a book. Um, It was a book that mom read to us every night. It was a book that uh, was in, you know, every room of our house Um, it was a book, um, and to billions of people today, it's still just a book. Um, but that word is a living word. And when it became alive in my life, when I desperately needed a change in my life because the course I was headed towards where set where prison saved me, it, it saved me from death. Um, I, I knew that I tried everything. I tried drugs. 
I tried alcohol. Um, and at the end of the day, it left me empty. Um, and I decided I'm going to try this book. I'm going to see if it works. Um, and until this day, I'm still trying it. So how does one try and see if the Bible works? What would be a few recipes one could try out? You know, I think if you're right now, if you're going through confusion, why don't you pick a couple of scriptures and read them about peace Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, clarity of mind, or maybe read Proverbs and get some wisdom and understanding and let that word resonate in you. Um, believe me, it doesn't stop in your mind. It will resonate with you. And again, try it. I, I would encourage people to try it. Listen, if you're going to go to Barnes and Noble and pick out a book to read, whether it's fictional or non-fictional, you try, you, you, you made an attempt to try the book. And I would just, encourage you to do the same thing. I was there. I guess we do that with diet books, right? Or health guides. Absolutely. I read men's health and there's always a more muscular model on the cover that claims if I do these five things, I'll resemble him. I'm actually pretty quick to adopt health tips. So, you know, maybe Proverbs is not such a bad suggestion. So do you think a lot of people just don't end up opening the book and trying? Do you think that's the, when people say, God, this is, this is a weird book. It's been assembled over thousands of years it's written by men. There's some inconsistencies in it. It's a weird book. Proverbs makes a lot of sense. Ezekiel, kind of bonkers when you read it. And you mentioned it's a living word to you. Uh, do you think? Do you think that would be the case for more people if they just if they tried it out and they and interacted with it more? Yeah, and and I think you brought up a great point when you brought up you know a diet book. You know, the one thing about the Bible is that it has no picture of a person in the front cover. Yeah. You know, so you're not going well, mine to mind it. I have a special Bible yeah, well, and it's got some cool photos. In yeah. It, so. Well, you're not going to pick up a Bible and buy it because of a picture in the That's front. Right. Um, the second thing is, is that, you know, if I picked up a dietary book or how to lose weight or how to gain muscle in my body, um, it's going to lead me down a quest of searching. Um, I want to learn fruits. I need to know what type of fruits are going to be good for my body in a season that I'm in right now. What type of meats should I should I be eating? Where do those meats come from? Do I want Kobe beef? Do I want regular beef? What's the difference? Mm. We do this naturally when it comes to changing our life. The Bible, in some sense, from a Western perspective, can be confusing because it's a it's written not just with content but culture, and so. A lot of us don't make the cultural connection with some of the content that is written. But if we did the research, let's just say that we would do if we were figuring out what kind of meat we're going to eat or what type of vegetables should we have that's going to work for where I'm at today when it comes to the body I'm trying to build. Then at the end of the day, you're going to find that there is some great truths in there that you can apply to your life. Why do you think we have to seek out the truth about it? One thing I've always struggled with is that some books like Proverbs, um, you know, Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of instant wisdom in there. Mm-hmm. And then other books, like we mentioned, you have to really know the cultural context and what was going on. And, you know, it's not until I opened up a commentary that I was able to see like, oh, I see the, the parables of the, you know, oftentimes, especially with the prophets, right? God yeah. is telling a prophet, hey, go and like take a pot, put a bunch of bones in it and boil it yeah. and then 
point to the people and say, you're the bones in this pot. It's yeah. a very interesting way of doing things. Right? 100%. And I go, well, that doesn't really seem relevant. No one's really doing that today. So why doesn't God update it a little bit? Or why, does, why doesn't God you know, update Revelation? Why are, we, why are we using a book from thousands of years ago to one written to kind of one culture at the time to base our entire walk of life on? Yeah. And, you know, the beauty about the scriptures is that they transcend time and they transcend seasons and they transcend fads. The Bible is something that is consistent. Um, and I think when we look for self-help books or we look for uh, what can we do read to improve our lives, you're not going to pick up a book 15 years that was written 20 years ago, um, it is going to be obsolete. And when you read the Bible, there's something about it that even though it was written 2000 years ago in its cultural content, there's still some truths to it that you can apply today. Like, you know, we're not going to sit there and, you know, women, you sit on one side of the church and men, you got to sit on the other. That, that could be culturally, um, uh, uh, extinct in, in, in certain places. But there's, when I went to South America with my grandmother and, um, you know, I was walking her in and, and we were there and I sat next to her, the pastor po gently, politely tapped my shoulder and says, the men are on the other side. Hmm. And I was like, no, I'm here with my grandma. She's your guest speaker. And then, you know, I looked at my grandma, my grandma gave me that look hmm. and, um, and, and it really, dawned on me that that some parts of the world it's still happening mm. um some parts of the world there's bones being put in a pot um it just may not be here in america so i try not to look at the bible in a sense to where may god have done whereas god has done things to in some sense throw the baby out with the bathwater. I, I would just sit there and go, man, he used that for that time. Um, it doesn't mean that he'll use that particular thing for this time. I mean, I'm, I sure hope he doesn't tell me to get a pot and put bones inside of it. That wasn't even the worst one in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, you know this. Yeah. He's got to lay on his side for two years. He oh, has like yeah. a side plank Yeah, on his left and right side. Has to cook his food over human excrement. Yeah. But then he appeals that. Yeah. I read that and God says, you're right. You have been good. You can use... Uh, uh, cow excrement instead. That was the that was the reprieve you got. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, man. The book is it's a really strange book. It is, uh, but obviously we're still talking about it. And absolutely, and it's and still the number one seller every year. Number one seller by know? far. I know. Um, all right. So another thing I want to ask you because I always find this area interesting is you mentioned and people who recognize there's another world. So kind of a weird topic that gets brought up in in Christian circles too is this idea of spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. um, it seems hard to read the Bible without acknowledging with some specific verses, specifically our, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, mm -hmm. um, but against the powers and principalities of the air. So what is spiritual warfare? Is that an allegorical thing? Do you think that's a real thing that's just like constantly going on around us? How do you, how do you view and interpret spiritual warfare? Yeah. I, I I think obviously going back to 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 even how we were born. I mean, you know, we were born spirit first, flesh second, 
Um, and this was the reasoning of us having to be born again. Nicodemus talked about that. What do I need to do? Return back into my mother's womb and come out again. That's the question he asked Jesus. So we are spirit beings living in a body. We are, we are of another world. You know, um, we are sent here on earth as our mission. God created the heavens for himself. He created the earth for his children. Be no different than, you know, us creating, you know, as parents creating our home and then buying a home for our children where they can enjoy it. Um, and so that fact that we are spirit beings before we were human beings lets us know that there is a spirit world. Um, and again, I go back to those who are listening today that go, man, come on, are you serious? Um, there's, there's no denial that people know there is this other world or a world that there is a battle going on today. It's amazing in times that we're faced, that we're looking at today with the COVID, with um, the racism going on today and the injustices, that people who are far from God or a far from a belief with God would say, this is satanic or this is, this is the work of the enemy. What enemy? What are you talking about? And so there is something in every single person that relates to another world because we are spirit beings before we were human beings. And every one of us, even as kids, were searching. We all went through the phases of wanting to be superheroes because the superhero came from a, another world, got supernatural power from another world. And so we're drawn to that. Why? Because there's something inside of us that we may have not paid a lot of attention to because we're more focused on the exterior and not the interior. But I've talked to thousands of people who are not in faith that will tell me all day, oh, I know there's a spiritual warfare or I know there is another world out there. I just don't know if I'm want to acknowledge it at this time. But I think there's, there is, in some sense, uh, within all of us, um, a sense of, 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 of knowing that there's another, another world out there. There's another battle that's going on behind the scenes of the battle we're seeing right now. And so if the Bible says, you know, resist the devil, the Bible says, you know, the battle is not flesh and blood, but, you know, there's a, there's a prayer component to that, to fighting uh, this other realm. What is that? How does that practically work out then for a Christian then? What do they, how would one interpret what to do about spiritual warfare? Do you wake up and go, oh, there's an enemy, you know, I, I just pray against it. Or is there it's not something I actually need to worry about? It's more of this, like, yeah, I'm not, do, I'm not doing anything bad, so I'm not really inviting that. Uh, how would you, how do you work that out? Well, and again, this all goes back to really getting to dive into the scriptures, understand it. Um, let's, let's talk about that. Resist the devil. Well, who is the devil? First of all, you'd ask that question. And we all know it's Lucifer, one of the three distinct angels that God created, distinctively different from others. So God created Lucifer, which was the worshiper, Michael, uh, which is the fighter, and Gabriel, who is the messenger. Um, one day, Lucifer gets jealous of God, and God throws him out with another group of angels. Okay, so all that heaven is left with now is Michael, the fight, and 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 Gabriel, the message. 
So God decided, you know what? I'm missing worship. I'm a God that wants to be worshiped. So he made man for its one purpose. And that was to be a worshiper of him, that we would worship the name that's above every name. So why does the devil hate us? Because we have the ability to do something he's prohibited of doing. At one time, he had the ability to do. And he's not a devil, he's an angel. And the Bible says angels are beneath us. The Bible lets us know that angels only have the ability to see the to the horizon. God never gave angels the ability to see into tomorrow. So we know that every time the devil, Lucifer, says, your tomorrow is going to be jacked up. Well, we know that's a lie because, again, angels are only, only have the ability to see to the horizon. So when we talk about resist the devil, we really got to think the context of who our enemy is. A, he's been defeated. Secondly, he's beneath us. Thirdly, God has given us the authority and the power to overcome who he is. Um, and fourthly, which I think is probably the primarily and the most important, is that God does the battles for us. And so when I think about spiritual warfare, I'm not thinking in the context of, to me, that I have to fight to make something happen. No, I, I think I got to take my rightful place of being a believer, uh, given keys to the kingdom and having the authority that has been delegated to me and coming in the name that has already defeated him at the de- at the grave. Mm. It's interesting. You said we're made to worship. I've always, I've heard that a lot and I've always had a tough time wrestling with that. I like to believe we have a bunch, you know, we have free will and we get to choose, but if we were made to do something specifically, it makes me wonder, do we actually have a choice? Like if we're made to do something and we veer away from that, then, and obviously worshiping takes many expressions. Yeah. I I, I'm sure that's why we're all, I mean, I believe that, you know, regardless of where you come at Christianity, everyone, every, you know, we love musicians and actors and actresses and, and movies and we we become fans real quick. Yeah, you yeah. Know? But I'm going, if I was made to worship, do I actually have that much free will? That's, that's always been interesting. If we were made to do something specific like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I look at it, you know, I look at my son. You know, my son, he, um, you know, always tells me, Dad, I'm, 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 I'm going to be the pastor. And I'm like, well, son, you, you could be anything you want. You know, mm-hmm. you know this, is, this doesn't have to be passed to you. I'm pretty sure other people can take it. And now he's been telling me, I want to be a business person. I want to make a lot of money. And then uh, recently he already wrote a script and I want to be a producer. How old is your son? He's 10 years old. Okay. I was going to say, and, um, he said he was like 32. No, nah, he's 10 years <laughs> Sounds old. Sounds like my friends. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and the, 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 the awesome thing about it is that whatever my son does um, will bring a glory to my wife and I. And I think when God says, you were created to worship, worship is larger than the expression of hands lifted, songs being sung. I think when we go out and do what he has placed a passion in our life to do, it is bringing glory to him. And that's what I would use the word worship. You know, he, you know, I wouldn't use the word worship and just marginalize it to the context of us singing a couple of songs. I would sit there and say that every day I get to worship him in all that I do. And that is just bringing glory and most importantly, a smile on his face saying, that's my child and he's living for me. Mm. 
Last question. What what is the biggest issue you see that transcends your congregation? And just when you meet people, what is the number one thing that people are struggling with right now that you see? And how do you address that as a pastor? I think today what has really what our times and what we're going through today has really illuminated in people's lives was what is my purpose Mm -hmm. and why am I here? Um, I don't think there's ever been a time, at least I was born where we were shut down for three months. We couldn't leave our homes. Um, We couldn't go to work. Uh, We did everything via zoom uh, technology wise. Um, And I think a lot of people had a lot of time you know, the enemy to your soul is hurry. And everybody's in a hurry. They want to get there fast. And we slowed down. We actually stopped. And I think a lot of people got a great picture of what their soul looks like. And I think at the end of the day, they realized a few things. Number one, what I'm doing today, is it significant? Number two, what I'm doing today, is it making a difference? And number three, what I'm doing today, is it the legacy I wanna leave? Mm-hmm. And I think people are really asking the right questions right now. I think with everything that's happening, is causing us to come to the table, but more importantly, take an inner look at our soul and see and notice how disconnected we have been because we've connected ourselves to hurriness, to busyness, and we've rewarded busyness when busyness is the opposite of fruitfulness. And so at the end of the day, I think that we're hearing more and more, what more can I add to my life that will have significance? I lead a Bible study on a Wednesday morning and Thursday morning with high achievers. and all of their businesses are booming right now, but there's still that dissatisfaction in them. Um, And they're realizing more and more that I want to attach myself to something that's significant, that is gonna actually make a huge difference. And I believe the stage has been set. I believe in the midst of chaos, Christ is magnified. And I really believe that what the enemy meant for bad, God's going to turn it around for the good. But he's just looking for people. And we always have to remember that leadership is at its best when problems are at its worst. And God is always looking for that leader, never in a good time, but in a bad time. We look at the Bible. When these men and women arose to greatness was pendant on the magnitude of the problem that they were called to solve. And so I have a different outlook on what's going on today. People are saying, oh, things are going bad, man. It's so bad, we're so divided. I'm going, whoa, the opportunity for Mm. leaders to rise out of the ashes right now, that in the next year, there are gonna be people you never heard of that are gonna be at the front line of these solutions. And then if you trace it back, you're gonna see that all this time that they went through, God was preparing them for what he had prepared for them. Mm. That's nice. I like hearing a little optimism right now. 
Yeah. A lot of negativity out there. Yeah. Lots of it. That's great. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, we gosh, we covered spiritual warfare, marriage. I know they're not the same thing, um, <laughs> but uh, biblical inerrancy. Thank you so much for listening to Kind of Christian. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review.